Find Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you might be new to the Bible. You can look at the one we gave you. The page number should be in the bulletin. Or you can look at the table of contents and find Ephesians. It's a book in the New Testament. And it tells us a lot about Christ and about His plan for us. And that's where we are as a church. As you're turning there, by way of introduction, let me make some observations. The news tells us that domestic violence is at an all-time high with both men and women. Juvenile detention centers are filled beyond capacity. The divorce rate is to the point where it almost seems passe for me even to bring it up. And adultery is so socially acceptable that it's flaunted. And with all of this and more, I think it's safe to say that the institution that we call the family is a mess. It's a disaster. I think any thoughtful observer who can simply be objective only for a few seconds and and watch television or, or just simply survey our culture has to conclude that something is very wrong. And things aren't getting better The more we learn, the more we study, the more degrees we obtain, things are not getting better. The state of the family has certainly seen better days. The good news is, with my Bible open, I do want to say this morning that the very one who ordained the institution of the family offers us hope for the family, and that is God Himself. God has a plan for the family. It's not a riddle. It's quite frankly not very confusing. And the solution to our disastrous state is found right here in God's Word. He has hope. He has hope for the family as an institution. He has hope for, how about this, for your family and for my family. The hope starts with God's gracious gift of eternal life that we've been learning about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And that gracious gift of eternal life comes only through faith in Christ. The Bible makes it very clear that we can be born again, that we can be transformed, changed, that we can be, as the Bible says, saved. Saved from the just wrath of God. Saved from living our sinful lives. We can be rescued out of that. And that's what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 has really been about. It's been the hope of eternal life. It hasn't been about the hope of the family. It's been about the hope of eternal life. Why don't you go ahead and just turn to Ephesians 1, 7. By way of reminder, since this really is the foundation to to us, as I like to say, disaster-proofing our families, Ephesians 1, 7 talks about this great hope, and it says, "...in Him..." That is in Jesus, in His substitutionary death for sinners, though He was never a sinner, never sinned. In Him, we have redemption. That is, it's it's the word to be, we've been bought out of. We've been purchased, specifically out of sin. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. That is, through His death, the shedding of His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins according to the riches of His grace. That's what we've been learning about in Ephesians. In Him, in Christ, in God's perfect plan to redeem a, a sinful humanity and to buy us out of that slave market of sin. In Him, we have redemption. We have forgiveness of, of, of all of our sins. That's what's been hope. That's what's been so hope-filled and what's been so amazing and so awesome. But upon being saved, as it says in Ephesians 2, rescued, redeemed, upon be, being given new life, then in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, we're now learning how to live this new life. As it says so many times, and as I keep repeating and will continue to repeat, we're now learning how to walk now that we've been given new life. Hope starts with faith in Christ that comes by the grace of God that gives us forgiveness of sins, a right standing before God, new life. And then hope for our actual lives and the way that we live. How about, in this case, our families is founded upon that hope in Christ 
And it is found instruction-wise in our Bibles in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, specifically chapter 5. There is hope for the family. It's based upon Christ. It's based upon His foundation. It's based upon the plan of God. And that's what we're going to learn about this morning. Starting in Ephesians 5.22. In Ephesians 5.22, all the way into chapter 6, we learn about God's plan for wives in the family. We learn about God's plan for husbands in the family. We learn about God's plan for children, for fathers, parents. Then we even get into the workplace. But right now, we're only talking about the family. Hope for our families. Hope for the family in general. We're trying this morning as Christians, people who say we have new life in Christ, to disaster-proof our families and not have our families be the examples on the news. Wives are dressed first, and that's what we'll do today. Wives, then husbands next week. And let me say that I'm going to go out of my way not to address husbands this morning. Not that I won't do that at times. But I am purposely going to go out of my way not to do that. Because what I don't want to do is take away from the address to wives. So if you come this morning, you really are only going to get half the message. It's going to be skewed, especially to you husbands. How about you need to withhold, you need to button your lips, husbands. (laughs) At least until you are addressed yourself from Ephesians 5. This is half the message, but I always want to be careful not to take away from the force of one by getting ahead of ourselves. So it's going to be for wives today and husbands next time. And next week we'll probably do that. I may preach a Christmas sermon. I don't want to be a Scrooge. Um, Calvin never did. He just kept preaching. And I like John Calvin. So you never know. We might just do husbands next week and that'll be, how about this, a Christmas present to wives. (laughs) Oh, See, tis the spirit. (laughs) Tis the season, right? I feel so giving. Let's go ahead and read this passage this morning. Ephesians 5, 22, 23, and 24. It says in verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And we'll stop there. Well, what did you think of that? I did it. I haven't been shot yet. I didn't wear my flak jacket today. But I just successfully read what is the most, if not one of the most, controversial passages. How about this? In the entire Bible. I did it. Answered prayer, number one. I know it's that controversial because this very passage, the one we just read, one particular religious organization, a professing Christian group, has leaders within their group right now lobbying, trying to get this passage removed from acceptable text to be read in Christian worship. And it's happening in that organization in this country and in other countries. They are lobbying and they are lobbying hard to get this inappropriate passage out of their religious readings. You heard me right. A Christian organization. In effect, they want to have it banned. They want to have a portion of the Bible banned because it's offensive. They want to have it struck from the list of appropriate texts. Is this controversial? Absolutely it's controversial. It's not even controversial only in the world. It's controversial in the church. Here's why we're not going to ban it at Omaha Bible Church. Till. The Lord comes, and those of you who didn't get raptured are here. Maybe you'll ban it then. Here's why we're going to read it. Here's why we're going to embrace it and deal with it. I I even have a list. And I don't mean to cheat you, wives. We'll get there. We'll we'll deal with actually what needs to be done. But but just to set it up, just in case you're wondering why in the world are we banning it? We're not going to ban it because it's plainly stated in the Bible, is it not? It says it right there. It's as clear as possibly can be. It's stated in the Bible. And how about this? It's repeated all over the place. We're going to even look at some of the repetition today. It's repeated in 1 Peter. It's repeated, uh, it's repeated in 1 Timothy, in effect. It's repeated in Colossians almost identically. It's kind of interesting. In some ways, uh, we as Bible-believing Christians are more like radical feminists 
then we are like professing Christians who want to ban it. Or somehow the Bible doesn't really say that. We're more like radical feminists. They're willing to say, you know what, the Bible teaches that. We don't like the Bible. As opposed to those who would want to say, well, the Bible just simply doesn't teach that. It absolutely does teach that. And so we're not going to shy away from engaging it. Another reason why we're not going to, to put it on the off-limits list at Omaha Bible Church is because this Bible claims to be the Word of God. It claims to be the Word of God. And, and Christians, the last time I checked, believed that the Bible is the Word of God. Second Timothy 3.16 is just one passage that says the Bible is God's Word. So it's part of God's Word, so we're going to simply read it and engage it. And as the Word of God, guess what? We don't stand in scrutiny over it. It stands above us as the authority, doesn't it? God, through His Word, stands above us. And guarantee this, you are being scrutinized. God is the one who's the authority. We're not the authority to tell God what His Word should say, shouldn't say, when it's appropriate, when it's not appropriate. You need to know for certain, God is above you and He's above me and He has His Word. And in His hand, His Word, Hebrews 4, is a, is a sword. It's living and active. And, and it is to do the changing in our lives. We're not to have that sword doing the changing with His will, Right? That's why we're going to let it say, talk for itself. Not only that, as Christians, we believe the Bible is God's Word. And how about this? We believe God created marriage. That God created the family. Pre-fall, He created marriage. And how about this? As the designer and the creator who is infinite in wisdom, who knows everything, and who is the one who said, here's Adam and I'm going to provide him with a helper. He knew what He was doing. God knows what He's doing. And so when He says this is the plan, guess what? It's the best plan. And I am insulting your intelligence, not to mention insulting God high-handedly. The word for that biblically is blaspheming. To, to suggest that I know more than God does and we shouldn't do this. Just common sense. I, I, really, that, that's not my number one reason, but I, I just think that God is smarter than I am. I think we'd all at least want to say that. So that's why we're going to let God speak. Another reason is because I'm a Christian pastor. And in 2 Timothy 4, you don't need to go there. Christian pastors are told very clearly in verse 1, they will stand before God, give an account to Him in front of witnesses. I'm being charged. Verse 2, pastors, proclaim the Bible. It says, preach the Word. That's my duty. And then it goes on to say, in season and out of season, when it's popular or when it's not popular. When people really want to hear it and when they don't want to hear it. In a sense, I gave my resignation a long time ago. I turn my resignation in at any ministry I'm involved in and say, I resign right now, in effect. As soon as you tell me I can't preach the Bible, I'm going to do it anyway, and so I won't be the pastor here anymore. And that's how every pastor should be. If I were here this morning and, and said, I'm not going to deal with this passage because it's too controversial, then you would have to demand that resignation for other reasons, right? And finally, this is pragmatic. And I don't think it's ever good to, to do something simply because it's pragmatic. Pragmatic means we do it because it works. But having given you a pretty big list of reasons why we're going to go ahead and just let it say what it says, okay, let's just throw in a pragmatic reason for, for good measure. How about no other way leads to a successful family? None of the other ways work. We're not busy evolving into getting better as a culture in our families. Look at our families. Look at how smart we are. Look at where psychology has gotten us. Look at where it's all taken. It's just a mess. And I refer you back to my introduction. Whether it's the juvenile detention centers, whether it's the adultery or the fornication, or whatever you want to look at, families in, in big trouble. So we're just going to simply say, you know what, God is God, so we're going to let God be God, and we're not as smart as God, so he's going to, we're going to let Him tell us what to do. And, and not only that, how about ultimately, we think He knows what He's doing, and it's going to work better than what we see now. In fact, it's going to work the best. It's not controversial. Not to God, not to us. This isn't controversial. 
Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, let's find a five-fold biblical explanation for the submission of Christian wives to their husbands. A five-fold biblical explanation for Christian wives to submit to their husbands. Submit, by the way, in case I skip that, means to align yourself up under someone. It's a military term. You, you, you underrank them. You might be equally human beings, and you are, and we'll get to that. Just like in the military, but you underrank. You're under someone else's leadership, under someone else's authority, under their guidance and direction and care. Here's the fivefold list. And they all start with her husband is, or her submission is, so you can abbreviate. Her submission is, number one, the result of her godliness. Her submission is the result of her godliness in verse 22. Number two, her submission is to be to her own husband. Her submission is to be to her own husband, also in verse 22. Number three, her submission is to be, quote, as to the Lord. Verse 22 as well, as to the Lord. Number four, her submission is because of divine role distinctions. Because of divine role distinctions, verses 23 to 24. And number five, her submission is comprehensive. Comprehensive, verse 24 there at the very end. Based upon the things I've just said, maybe I sound a little bit defensive, a little bit um, apologetic for things. I'm not. I just think it has to be said just to maybe help some of you who might be struggling sort of bring yourself up to speed and and to really think logically about this. But I'm not apologetic at, at all because here's what I really think. I really think this is what's good. I really think this is what's best. I really think... As I even pragmatically observe it in people's homes and lives, guess what? It works. It's Christ-honoring. So I want to preach, and I try to do this every single week, whether we're talking about submitting to government or wives submitting to husbands, or how about next time, husbands loving their wives, or we're talking about giving, we're talking about preaching, whatever the text brings up, I want to go to the very edge and just preach my heart out. Because it's really that important. So I'm going to try to not hold anything back this morning because this really is what's best. And it'll change your life and it'll certainly help to disaster-proof your family. First explanation for the submission of Christian wives to their husbands is, number one, her submission is the result of her godliness. In verse 22 it says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, I hope you're asking this question. I hope you're saying, where in the world did you get that? Where did you come up with that point in your outline? Her submission is a result of her godliness? I hope at least at first you read verse 22 and say, I don't even see that in there. Are you trying to pull a fast one on us, Pastor, or what? Hmm. As a matter of fact, be subject is italicized because the translators know the Greek words aren't even actually there. The reason I'm going to make the point and say the reason she submits, it's, it's the outcome of her godliness is because of three very important principles when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Context, context, context. Let's take a little bit of time. In fact, this is probably the most important point in the whole study here. If you don't pay attention to anything else, at least pay attention to this. Let's see the flow of this passage, and we will see the reason a wife submits to her husband is because she's godly. It's the outflow of her godliness, or vice versa. If she doesn't, it just reflects she's not godly and needs to work and needs to, to excel. Let's go back to the, to the command of this passage. And the, the previous command isn't right before it. It's in verse 18. This is some good Bible study for us to roll our sleeves up on. 5.18 we studied last time. Here's the, the, the command that precedes it. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. Then, here's the supernatural thing to do that we really focused on last time, but be filled with the Spirit. There's the command it's linked to. Even our verse is linked to that command, I'll show you. Be filled with the Spirit. And we talked about it last time, to be filled up. There's nothing else, there's no more room, and so you're controlled by the Spirit. 
Be controlled by the Spirit. And it's a command that's to be repeated. It's habitual. This is what Christians should always be. Always be being filled by the Spirit. Always be being controlled by the Spirit. I even referenced the cross-reference that's somewhat of a parallel in Colossians 3.16. It doesn't say be filled with the Spirit, even though it's almost an identical context. It says, let the Word of Christ ritually dwell within you. Certainly there's got to be some overlap. It's a command to be godly. Be godly. Do what Christ says. Do what the Spirit says. Don't do what you want to do. Do what God wants you to do. After all, first three chapters of Ephesians, He saved you. You didn't deserve it. It was all about Him. It's all about His great plan. So guess what? Ephesians 5.18, be controlled by Him now that you have new life, right? That's the command because after that, He simply elaborates. He elaborates, if you want to be grammatical, with participles. He says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That's simply elaborating on being filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, to God, even the Father. Again, elaborating on being filled with the Spirit the outcome. Verse 21, also the outcome. And be subject, more literally, and being subject, participle also, to one another in the fear of Christ. Be filled and all of these other things come as a result of being Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled. And that last outcome was being subject. And then we stopped. What we're studying this morning is him elaborating on what he, what he means by that. Okay, we're spirit controlled and part of the outflow of being spirit controlled is, is submitting to one another and then follow the flow. Verse 22, wives to your own husbands. You can even take out the italicized statement. Submitting one to one another, verse 21, 22, wives to your own husbands. He's elaborating on that. He's getting back to that. So certainly our translators had every justification for inserting italicized so we would know what they were doing. Be subject. But you see, if you follow the flow of the passage, you have to conclude that spirit-filled people are godly people and they do godly things. And spirit-filled wives submit to their husbands. That's all he's getting at. I hope you saw it without my explanation. But if not, I wanted to walk you through the flow and seeing what it says in its context. One of the outcomes of being spirit-controlled, if you're a wife, one of them, is you submit to your husband. Just one of the outflows of it. And certainly the opposite is true also, right? And if you're not submissive to your husband, you don't follow his leadership willingly. It reveals ultimately that you certainly need to work on that, but you need to go back up to verse 18 and work on being a spirit-controlled person. You need to cross-reference to Colossians 3.16 and work at letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you so that you're being transformed into this godly person so that then as an outflow, you can submit to your husband. You can follow his leadership. It's pretty masterful the way the whole thing is laid out. Now... (laughs) Someone might say, this isn't natural. (laughs) Me? Submitting to my husband? I think there's even a book called something like that. Me? Submit to him? You might say, this is not natural. And I must tell you that I wholeheartedly agree. This is not natural. It is not natural for you as a wife to submit to your husband. And it hasn't been natural ever since the fall of humanity. Because ever since the fall of humanity, you know what's been natural as a result of sin? What's been natural for wives is for them to have this desire to lead their husbands. Not submit to them. You want natural? That's natural. It's built in your spiritual DNA as a fallen person. And I'll deal with the husbands next time. They've got some messed up things built in their spiritual DNA too. It's not natural for you to follow your husband. I'm there with you. In a moment, we're going to work on supernatural. But let's go to Genesis 3, just in case you have never considered this before. You wonder, why do I have such a hard time struggling submitting to this perfect husband you gave me, God? And we know that's not true. But why is it so hard? Well, because it's not natural. 
Wasn't there an advertisement on for furniture or something? They said, that's just not natural. That's what I think of when I study this for whatever reason. Genesis 3.16. Maybe this will help you at least understand why you have such a hard time. Genesis 3.16, it says, and remember, this is a result of sin, a result of the fall. So whatever he's saying here is not good. This is negative. He says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. We usually are familiar with that. In pain you will bring forth children... Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Neither one of those things are positive. This is a result of sin. It's not like you used to hate your husband. No. And now you'll desire him affectionately. No, you used to desire him affectionately. You will desire your husband. That is, you will have a desire to lead him, even though I gave you the role as helper. You say, how do you know that? Same word for desire is used one other time in Genesis, and it's used in chapter 4. Close context? Go to Genesis chapter 4. The word for desire, Genesis 4, God speaking to Cain, says in chapter 4, verse 7, and I'll skip the first part of it and just read the latter part. He says, sin is crouching at the door. Pretty picturesque. And it's, that is sin's, desire, there's our word, is for you. But you must master it. No one reading Genesis in the flow, at least if you have any kind of Hebrew kind of connection, original audience is going to miss that. It's this desire. It's a desire to overtake. It's a desire to conquer. It's a desire to control. And Cain is to control. A sin is going to try to control Cain, but he can't let it control him. Genesis chapter 3, part of the curse upon the woman because of the fall is she will now have this desire to control her husband. She'll now have the desire not to play helper, but leader. So when you say this just isn't natural, I have to agree with you wholeheartedly. But now, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, but God, He's intervened. Now you're saved, born again, redeemed. You have hope, a living hope. Guess what? You're a new creation. It's not time to live naturally anymore. By nature, you're a child of wrath, Ephesians 2. Don't live naturally anymore. Live what? Supernaturally. I don't have to live in Genesis 3 anymore. I can live the way God wanted me to live before the fall. Supernaturally, I I can live a submissive Christian wife life. That's all. That's the good news. We We don't have to be bound to the bad that happened. Submission is a result of being spirit-controlled. Supernatural control by God is how it's done. It's another way of saying being godly. You know, just to be real practical, you want to know if I really believe this stuff or not? I've already been praying for our two daughters. Either since they were born or maybe even before they were born. I don't remember and I don't want to misspeak. Not because I, I, you know, and here's how you get with, as a father, you know, I've already felt the pride and, you know, no man's going to be good enough for my daughter. And, you know, you, you, got, you know how it is. Probably some of you guys who have older daughters are even more that way. Can't, let, can't believe my father-in-law let me marry Molly. Sheesh. Is he crazy? But no way. No man is going to be good enough for my daughter. Daughters. But you know what? I know what God says. I pray for them. I do pray for their husbands, though. (laughs) I pray that their husbands would be godly men who would sacrifice for them, die to sell for these women. I probably pray harder for that, let me be honest. But I do pray, regularly pray, not just last night because I knew I had to preach this way. I regularly pray for my daughters, that they would grow up, number one, and be saved, hopefully earlier than later in life, And number two, that God would make them godly women and that they would be godly to the point where they would submit to their husband's leadership. Because I know that that's the way for them to have the best life. And if they don't do it, they're going to have a tough life. They're going to have a disaster of a life. This is good. This is positive. It's as important as other things in life because the Bible commands it. The Bible commands you to obey the Lord. Guess what? This is part of it. And it's never presented in a negative light, an oppressive light, a bad light. It's positive and it's part of the outflow of being godly. And so I'll have to ask you ladies here today who are wives, do you submit to your husbands? 
Do you voluntarily align yourself up under them functionally? It's more than just taking their name. It's actually following their leadership. I've got to ask you if you do that. And, and say, if you don't do that, then there's an issue between you and God, not just between you and your husband. Do you live in Genesis 3? Resentment, regret, nasty, bad attitude. Or do you live in Ephesians 5? Thankfully, I know that even though I'm not in your home, a lot of you do. Not that you don't struggle with the old man who pierces his ugly head. And I don't mean your husband. I mean the old spiritual man. (laughs) I mean that too. (laughs) In case you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible talks about the old man, meaning the old self. Surely you're going to struggle because you're going to keep struggling. In fact, you need to struggle over until the day you see the Lord and you're made like Him. But I'm so thankful that it really happens. It's real life. That my wife has other older godly women. She actually sees it happen in their life. And that my daughters, yes, get to see it actually fleshed out and modeled in the body of Christ. This is a good thing. I'll even go so far as to say, ladies, those of you who, as a pattern, uh, submit yourselves to your husband's leadership, thank you. Thank you on behalf of this whole church. And by the way, even the Bible talks about that. You're to be an example to everyone else. Let's go ahead and turn there to Titus. Titus chapter 2. If you're in Ephesians, you can just work your way to the right to Philippians, Colossians, then First and Second Timothy, or Thessalonians, First Timothy, Second Timothy, then Titus. Hebrews is a big book and you went a little bit too far if you got to Hebrews. But in Titus chapter 2, and I just want to encourage our godly women, because we have godly women as part of this church family. I just want to encourage you, and I know lots of you do this. I'm saying thank you and reminding everyone else that this is so and this is true. Titus chapter 2 verse 4 says, So then they, speaking of older Christian women, so then they may encourage, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. See, that's so good that that really happens. It really happens in the body. It really happens here. And it's pretty important, don't you think? Look at the last statement, purpose clause, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. You want to know how important it is, your ministry, you older ladies to younger ladies? It is so important that you show younger women by your example and by your instruction these things, including they submit to their husbands. It's so important because if it doesn't happen, the Bible's making it clear, God's Word will be dishonored. The Word, I believe, is blasphemed. Oh, you have a great ministry. You have an awesome ministry to model and to instruct. Because God is really serious about this. I don't think you'll find that statement anywhere else in the Bible, by the way. God thinks a lot of things are important. So let's not weigh things out too much. But I don't think He ever says, do this because to not have it done means my word is dishonored, blasphemed. My reputation is drugged through the mud. So be encouraged. Be challenged. Be motivated. Because I know while you're being progressively sanctified and being made more like Christ if you're a Christian, I know you live with another sinner who happens to be saved if he is. And it's not easy. And so, be encouraged by this. Be encouraged in your ministry. It's so important. Let's go ahead and move on to the second explanation. We won't spend as much time on the first one as we did on the the other ones as we did the first one. Her submission is to be to her own husband. I hope this is clear. I hope it's just as clear as can be because it is. In verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Unfortunately, the the NIV doesn't translate the Greek word that should be translated own. So it kind of takes away from the force. You might even jot it in in the margin or something if you have a New International Version. It's a good Bible to use. But they just didn't translate that word. Submit to your, be subject to your own husbands. There's There's an intensity there. There's an emphasis there. God's plan is not just a generic plan. All women submit to all men. It's not what it says. 
It's very specific. There's a specific relationship. Husband, wife, wife, be subject to your own husbands. And this makes sense given the fact like in Mark 10, Jesus comments on Genesis and Jesus comments on marriage that, that God, when a husband and a wife are married, a man and a woman are married, become husband and wife, God joins them together. God seals the relationship, not the state. God joins them together. And even in Ephesians 5 and Genesis 2, it says they become what? One flesh. They're one flesh. Now, not all men and all women are joined together as one flesh. A husband and a wife are joined together as one flesh, one spiritual entity. It only makes sense that you wives submit to your own husband because he is your husband and you are united. You are one flesh. Just by way of application, what does this mean? It means that I don't ask Molly to submit to other men. I don't ask her to do that. It also means I I don't put her in positions where she's always having to submit to other men in the way that she would submit to me and follow my leadership. And I'd say the same thing is true for you in your life. You need to think that through. Do you put yourself in positions where you're always having to submit to other men the way you'd have to submit to your own husband? That's fair to think through. There are biblical exceptions to this. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, everyone is to submit to the government, whether they're a man or a woman. Christians are to submit to the government. My wife submits to the government, man or woman. Me too. Uh, Hebrews 13 says, all believers are to submit to spiritual leaders. 13, 17. Doesn't matter. So we all have a certain amount of submission to our, our leaders, whether they were a man or a woman. But even those, obviously, it's not that intimate same kind of day-to-day leadership. I don't want my, my wife to get day-to-day leadership from someone who's not her husband. She's not one flesh with them. So it's worth considering and thinking through. You're to submit to your own husbands. And I'm careful. I'm always trying to think this through and how it, how it shows up in my life and how I function. Because obviously, I'm one of the elders here, so I fall into the category of Hebrews 13. And so there is a call to for submission to leaders. I still try to be careful. I don't want to say I'm perfect, but I try to be careful. What does that look like then? When I'm going to tell a woman who is not my wife what to do. It's one thing when it's clear chapter verse. Here's what the Bible says. But what about other things? I want to be cautious and careful. I want to know their husband. I want to talk to their husband. I might say, have you talked to your husband about this? And be careful that I'm not doing something to violate what she's been called by God to do. But again, don't take it out of context. We do function in ministry, and my wife does submit to the elders here, and she's involved in different areas of ministry. Guess where? She follows their leadership. But I appreciate the leaders at times when there's some kind of issue, they try to work through me and bring me in the loop because they don't want to violate this. I think we're sensitive. We're trying to use wisdom and caution, and I really appreciate those leaders who do that because we're really trying to, to flesh this out. Third explanation for submission of Christian wives to their husbands is her submission is to be as to the Lord. Verse 22, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think this speaks to her level of commitment. It also can speak to her motive. Level of commitment. Here's the question. Who is it that we as Christians are most committed to? Who will we defend? Who will we proclaim? Who will we follow no matter what? We are totally committed to whom? To Christ. You see where I'm going. Oh, intense. We're totally committed to Him. Well, you notice what it said, didn't it? What sort of commitment level should a wife have as far as intensity, as far as level of commitment to her husband and submitting to him? What does it say in verse 22? As to the Lord. There's to be a mirror there. I don't know of any Christian woman who wouldn't at least say, I want to follow Christ no matter what, and I'm committed to following Him. I'm intense. I'm going to follow Him. I'm, I'm radically committed to that. And here the Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. How? As to the Lord. That's big. And like I said, we all know He's not the Lord. We all know He's dysfunctional, because everyone is dysfunctional, by the way. 
I lead a dysfunctional life. I lead a dysfunctional family. Everyone is dysfunctional, right? It's just a matter of level. But it's saying, you look at your commitment to Christ, assuming it's a good one, and you put a mirror up, and your commitment to your husband is the same kind of commitment. I don't even need to elaborate on that, do I? Wow. And then her motive is spoken to also, I think, in that statement, as to the Lord. You say, why do I submit to my husband? He's, not, he's really dysfunctional. He's not godly, or he is godly. And the point is irrelevant, right? As unto the Lord. You look at your husband and you say, ah, I'm not going to follow him because I don't like that decision. Well, you're not really following your husband. You're, it's as unto the Lord. It's like you're following the Lord. So you can look past his good or his bad and you follow his leadership. Because it's like you're following the Lord. You say, I don't want to do what my husband wants me to do. That doesn't seem like a good idea to me. It doesn't seem wise, but he's emphatic that I need to do it. Well, if the Lord told you to do it, you do it, right? I guess you do it. And there are times, I'll tell you, when, when I am involved, let's say the husband is an unbeliever and he's wanting the wife to do something that doesn't seem very wise. And I want like I want like I want like I want to say, don't do it. I don't, unless it's something unbiblical and we'll get to that. As unto the Lord. Sheesh. Maybe that's a good word for husbands. Husbands, just because your wife follows you doesn't mean you're you're godly. (laughs) Just because your wife follows you doesn't even mean she thinks you're godly. (laughs) Don't say that to them, wives. (laughs) That's not an attitude of submission, but I just thought I'd level with the guys. Nope. Your wife's busy being godly because she loves the Lord Jesus Christ and she's following your leadership as if she was following you. So when you are making a real dumb, boneheaded decision, don't think because your wife is following along that it's a good decision. She, with a submissive attitude, is doing what she needs to do. Fourth explanation for submission of Christian wives to their husbands is is her submission is because of divine role distinctions. Because of divine role distinctions. Here's the reason. You want a reason? You want to say, now why would we do this? Why would I have to submit to my wife or my husband? It says right there in verse 23 and 24, 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. That's the explanation right there. The husband is the head. He's using a body analogy, a physical analogy. And the head is providing the leadership. Just like Christ is the head of the church, He's the head. He provides direction. He provides authority. He provides leadership. And we are the body. He's borrowing from the anatomy analogy. Wives, your husband is the head. So he provides direction. He provides leadership. That's all he's doing. And the outflows in verse 24, but as the church, that is the body, right, is subject to Christ, who is the head, right? So also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. There it is. This is just God's plan. It's, it's a divine role distinction that he set up. Christ, no one would argue that we are co-heads with Christ and we, we lead the church together. Nope, he's the head. We're the body. We follow. He's the chief shepherd. In the home, husband is the head. He's the leader. There are not two heads. Sometimes we say two heads are better than one. There's a place for that, obviously. Not in this analogy. Two heads are not better than one. Two heads are bad. It's distorted. Once in a while, a baby is born with two heads, right? And when we see that, we feel sad. I looked at some pictures this week. And you feel bad. Feel sad. You know there are going to be complications. It's not going to be a normal life if they even live. If you have two heads in your marriage, we should all watch just as we do as we look at the pictures and we should be sad. And we should know that that's not the way it should be. 
And we should know that there are going to be complications in your marriage. Great analogy. By the way, there's been some writing and attempts by feminists, Christian feminists, if that's not an oxymoron, I guess. Gilbert Belzikian is probably the most famous. He's the founding elder at Willow Creek Community Church in Barrington, Illinois. And he has written extensively arguing that the two verses we just read, the word head doesn't mean leadership. Head means source. And it's just not true. Wayne Grudem, in his book that he edits called Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, has a has an answer-all chapter to Belzekian and shows that over 2,000 times this word is used in biblical and extra-biblical Greek literature. It always means authority. And it doesn't simply mean source. I know most of you don't care and most of you don't uh, interact on in those circles, but just in case you do, or someone who hears my voice, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I think it's in the appendix by Wayne Grudem, and pretty much answers it definitively. Now, at this point in time, there's a common objection. And you might even be thinking of it. And I don't think it's bad to have the objection, because it might just mean you haven't thought it through. Probably the biggest objection to all this is in Galatians 3. Why don't you go ahead and turn there? Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, it's right before And the objection is this. All of this stuff that this ranting and raving pastor today, meaning me, has been saying is true. But once you become a Christian, it's not true anymore. You see, when Christ redeems us, when He justifies us, when He saves us, then we don't have these distinctions anymore. And I would like to walk you through why that absolutely makes no sense at all. Hopefully, you're already, you're already thinking of a reason why it doesn't. But Galatians 3.28 is uh, sort of the proof text, which is really a pretext, because it doesn't say this at all. It says in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Couldn't agree with that more. Every Christian agrees with that. Is the context in Galatians about role distinctions in the church or in the family? No. Any first-year Bible student at Bible college, hopefully any first-year Christian living at the Bible college called Christianity, knows what Galatians is about. Galatians is about Paul defending justification, that is, your Declared righteous, you're saved. Defending justification by faith alone, no matter who you are. There's not a different plan for the Jews and then a different plan for the the non-Jews. There's not a different plan for, for slaves or free people. There's not a different plan for men and women. The only way anyone could ever be saved, that's the crux of his argument, is through faith alone and Christ's finished work alone. That's how. He's not talking about roles. He's absolutely not talking about roles. Furthermore, this kind of argument is foolish. You could go back to Ephesians if you wanted to. It's totally foolish because suggesting that once we're saved, we don't have the role distinctions anymore doesn't make any sense in light of Ephesians. Don't let your intelligence be insulted. Ephesians, salvation, all the great plan of God, first three chapters. And now that you are a Christian, now that you've been born again, now that there is no distinction as far as your spiritual condition before God, here's how you're supposed to live. And guess what? In the family, there are role distinctions. Totally equal, totally, absolutely equal in the eyes of God. My wife is more godly than I am. She's as saved as I am. Totally equal in God's eyes. But functionally, based upon Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Peter and everywhere else, I'm to function as the leader. That's how it was pre-fall. How about? Let's not just go to Ephesians. Adam was there. God provided a helper. No sin yet. It's further substantiated when it comes into the realm of the church, which is not what we're talking about. Pre-fall, 1 Timothy 2 argues, God set up this order of male leadership. Furthermore, this is repeated everywhere. Colossians 3.18, 1 Peter 3.1, Titus 2.5, I mentioned it earlier. 
just don't be insulted and, and don't somehow twist and tweak and pervert Galatians 3.18 to mean something it doesn't mean, to mean something the rest of the Bible doesn't mean. Is submission bad? Let's just ask that question, maybe. I mean, is submission bad? We're equals. Everyone. Everyone here. It doesn't matter. If you're saved, you're equal. But to think that some of us submit to others, is that bad inherently? Is that somehow repressive? Is that somehow twisted and some power monger kind of distortion? Well, I don't think so because we're called to submit to government. First Peter 5, as I mentioned. We're called to submit to church leaders, Hebrews 13. We're called, how about this, younger men are called to submit to older men, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. We're not upset about that. Or how about the, the big one? The Son, God the Son, submits to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 11. God the Father is the head. Christ comes under Him. So as soon as we say, don't ever say, submission is inherently bad and repressive. And if you have to submit to someone, that means you are less than they are. Uh-oh, don't go there. You just became a heretic. <laughs> because you just, in effect, said that Jesus Christ is less than God the Father. First Corinthians 11. And we know it's not true. You all see how ridiculous it would be if we caught a glimpse of Jesus, which would never happen, saying, Oh, I feel so hindered. I feel so repressed. Oh, I just have no freedoms. And he's one who submits. He aligns himself under and functions perfectly, fully, embracing it exactly the way he wants it to be. Is the vice president any less of a person? Don't speak personally. I don't want to hear about your political convictions. Is the vice president any less of a person than the president? Is he any less of a citizen than the president? Are you any less of a person than the president? Are you any less of a citizen than the president? It's no, 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 and no, right? But the way our system is designed, we have one president. And I don't think... Dick Cheney's feeling restricted, repressed. Not a bad analogy. I like the analogy. I don't remember it exactly now, but I'm going to use it when we're in Colossians 3. It talks about freedom and, and people wanting, this is, I need freedom. I, I'm repressed. I just can't have this anymore. And the, the analogy goes like this. Two people jump out of an airplane. One has a parachute, the other one doesn't. Who's more free? The one without the parachute. They're free and easy. They're lighter, they can move around better, no restrictions at all. And they are dead, right? Deader than dead. Or how about, how about all the limitations that are placed upon us now when we fly places? It's pretty intense. You know, I go to the, the Burbank airport when I was there last time, they had M16s. I don't know, I don't think they do here. It's pretty intimidating. It's pretty amazing. And they're checking people and people complaining about it. And, and there's all this, this bondage, you know, all this repression. So I suppose you can get fed up with it finally and be on the plane flying at 12,000 feet or however high you are going, 20,000 feet, and, and say, I've just had it. And they won't let me do what I want to do. They won't let me turn on what I want to turn on. They won't let me get my pocket knife out anymore. Then you're in real trouble. You know what? And you just tear the door open and you just jump. And guess what? You're free. No more bondage. No more repression. No more limitations. And you're dead too. The point is, this is a good thing. I want some security. I want some boundaries. I want to function the way God, how about this? God made me to function. And I have the joy of being able, supernaturally, to function the way I was supposed to function before sin cursed this earth. Why do I want to keep living in the sin world and bucking the system? I want to say, apparently this is the best. I want the best. It just doesn't make any sense to do otherwise. Fifth explanation, and we'll end here. 
Her submission is comprehensive. Her submission is comprehensive. The Bible didn't say this. I almost wouldn't believe it. Verse 24. The wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Ephesians 5.24. In everything. It's not conditional. It's not compartmental in certain parts of your life, but not in other parts of your life. In everything. And this makes sense if you're one flesh. Everything. Now, ladies, I've got to tell you that I am not standing here today telling you that you need to submit to your wife in everything. I, I would never say that. But that's exactly what the Bible says. That's what it says. In everything. You say my checkbook? Yeah. You say my personal life? Yeah. And what personal life? Your one flesh. Everything. You say, but what if my husband is ungodly? Some of you have ungodly husbands. What if he's ungodly? Well, 1 Peter talks about that. Let's go to 1 Peter. First Peter is toward the end of the Bible. Revelation, Jude, Third John, Second John, First John, Second Peter, First Peter, First Peter, chapter three. I'm going to bite my tongue and not say bad things about your ungodly husbands because I don't want you to give you a worse attitude than you already have. It says. 1 Peter 3.1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the Word, that means ungodly, doesn't it? They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your godly behavior. Yes. And here's where my flesh kicks in and I have to be honest with you that there are times when I don't want a wife to submit to their husband. Because I see how ungodly and how bad he is. And I am biting my tongue now because I want to say something else about them. But the Bible says submit to your husband. Even if they're ungodly, they're disobedient to the word, you do it. Why? Because you have a silent testimony. You're not Billy Graham, the, the, the girl version, chasing them around and, and always pointing out their sin. You obviously can talk to them about Christ and these things, but you're winning them. How are you doing, ladies? What kind of example are you to other women? Because I guarantee you other women are watching you. My wife is learning from you. You're learning from my wife. Your daughters are learning from you. That's a pretty powerful thing. Remember, this isn't natural. It just isn't. It's supernatural. Naturally, I don't want my daughters to submit to anyone, quite frankly, other than me. Because I know how much I love them. But even supernaturally, I've got to come to grips with that and get over that. So that's why I pray so much for them and for their husbands. That's supernatural. Let's end with this. And I said this is the last point, and it was, so I wasn't lying. But let's end by looking at one time when you don't submit, wives. I know it's exhaustive. Paul drives the point home. But Paul's not going to contradict the rest of Scripture. I get the idea that he is assuming that we all know that our allegiance is always number one to Jesus Christ. And he doesn't even have to mention it. But I'm afraid I do have to mention it, so I'm going to. There is a time... When all of us have to rebel. Peter says, with no qualifications, how about this? Submit to the government. First Peter, I mean, he's, he doesn't give any qualifications. Sort of like Paul does here for wives. But Peter didn't submit to the government. Under one instance, one occasion, there's one time when you don't submit to that man. And that's when that man tells you to do something ungodly. 
And now you don't only have the option. It's essential that you don't do what he says. In Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, in case you don't catch it the first time, it comes up two times. And you can turn there if you'd like, but you do need to know Acts 4 and 5 is a model for us. And I think it's particularly impressive that Peter's the one who's breaking the law and violating the government because he's the one that preached government submission. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, it says, But Peter and John answered, this is when they were told not to preach anymore by the government. And they said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. And in effect, he's saying, we will obey God, not you. Peter's violating his own command because he's taking the higher law and he can't sin against God. Acts 5.29 says, But Peter and the apostles answered again, they're told not to do the right thing, not to do the biblical thing that God commanded them to do. We must obey God rather than men. And without hesitation, I have to tell you, wives, that when your ungodly husband, if you have one, and if he does, tells you to do something, how about let me emphasize this, that is clearly unbiblical. I don't think we're into the unwise, wise thing here. It was clearly unbiblical what they told Peter to stop doing. When your husband does that, if he does that, then you do take the higher law. And you refuse. How about as submissively as possible? And you live with the fallout. Peter did. This happens at times.